the Lord used one Christian man to spark a revival in England. That man was John Wesley. John Wesley was a Methodist. He was known as a theologian and an evangelist. And on Monday, April 2nd, 1739, he did something that most pastors in that time, in that land, had not done. He actually took the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, outside of the four walls of the church building and open air preached to the masses. He took the good news of Jesus to the common man. And on that day, about 3,000 people heard the gospel. And the sermon text that he used was the sermon text that I'm preaching on this morning in Luke chapter 4. John Wesley says in his diary that at four in the afternoon on that day, I submitted to more vile and proclaimed in the highways the glad tidings of salvation. What John Wesley was saying is that, yes, the gospel is to be, to be preached from the pulpit for God's people. God's people always need, need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. God's people don't ever get tired or bored of the good news that's in the Lord Jesus Christ. But John Wesley understood that people outside of the four walls needed to hear the good news as well. And so he took the good news to the common man. He understood that it would be uncomfortable. He understood that his personal comfort and privileges would come at a cost, that he would lose that. He says that he submitted himself to more vile. He put himself in an uncomfortable position because he cared for the souls of other people. I'm not saying that you have to be an open-air preacher. Not all of us are called to be open-air preachers. Not all of us are called to be missionaries. Not all of us are called to be pastors. Not all of us are called to be church planters. But what you are called to do, God's people, is to share the gospel with your neighbor across the street or to the side of you or your co-worker or at birthday parties, or family reunions. Wherever God has sovereignly, providentially led your feet and your body that's connected to your feet to share the good news of Jesus Christ. We always think in grandiose terms, in absolute terms, that in order for me to be faithful to the Matthew 28 Great Commission, I need to do something extraordinary and become a missionary halfway around the world. If you don't share the gospel here, you're not going to share the gospel halfway around the world and spend thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars and time, by the way, to share the gospel over there. You can be obedient to God here. So my question to you is not will you be an open-air preacher. My question to you this morning is will you be faithful in sharing the gospel with those that are around you now? Or do you believe everything's by accident? Do you, do, do you believe that where you live is an accident? Where you work is an accident? The family that you were born and raised in is an accident? The culture and the nation and the neighborhood that you are raised in was an accident? Do you believe it was an accident? Or do you believe that God actually created you for a very specific point in time? And when he saved you, he saved you not so that you could be lazy and eat potato chips and watch the ball game all the time. 
Oh, Pastor Ola, that's not how you start a sermon. That's exactly how I'm starting the sermon. Because some of us are too comfortable. And if we're to be honest, we're lazy. We love the benefits of America. We love the comforts and the securities of America. We love the protection of America, but we're not willing to do what God has called us to do. I'm not just preaching to you, I'm preaching to me as well. So when was the last time you actually shared the gospel with other people because you simply cared for their souls and you did it because of the glory of God? That you were compelled to do something. Like you love people. You understand people are made in the image of God. There's a body and there's a soul. And the last thing we want to see is that this soul is condemned and judged and cast into hell for all of eternity. But see, when we don't think in terms like that, nothing motivates us. The glory of God doesn't motivate us. People going to hell doesn't motivate us. We're more attracted to the lesser lights of this world than the greatest light, which is Christ and what he's called you to do. So we're in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. You see that in your bulletin entitled, The Rejected Nazarene. The Rejected Nazarene. And the main point I want to get across today is all of God's promises are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. All of God's promises are fulfilled in Jesus, the Christ. If we look at the first 13 verses of this chapter, you'll remember that Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Not once, not twice, but three times. And on every occasion, Jesus did not retort or respond by some human philosophy or humanism or secularism. He actually quoted the word of God to refute and to challenge the devil. And our Savior is the perfect one. He did not sin, not even once. And so the devil left Jesus until another opportune time or favorable time, as the scriptures say. Now we're in verse 14. And in verse 14, Jesus is led back into Galilee by the power of the Holy Spirit. And one of the things I want us to connect as Trinitarian people, gospel-centered people, that we believe in one God, not three gods. One God, three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Father is God, Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son. And the Son is not the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not the Father. One God, three distinct persons. And each person has a role in your salvation and mine. These are three real people. And so Jesus returns to Galilee from the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. The Spirit's work and the work of Jesus Christ in the Bible, especially in the Gospels, you're going to see a close association. And so Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit, led by the Spirit. That's the first verse of chapter and Jesus is directed by the Spirit to Galilee. And when Jesus gets there, there's a report. There's news. There's information that is spreading abroad in that region. And when we get to verse 15, what does Jesus do? As his custom, what Jesus does is on the Sabbath, he goes into where? The synagogue. 
the synagogue is important because if you understand Jewish orthodox monotheism, Jewish life, that the synagogue is the central place for life and practice and family. It's who you are. It's who you are as a Jew. And so Jesus goes into the synagogue, and as his custom, he teaches. He's going into a very strategic place to teach something that's very, very important. So Jesus is in a Galilean synagogue. In Matthew chapter 4, we see that Jesus teaches. When you, when you look at Jesus' ministry, he's always teaching. He's teaching on the Sabbath day where? In the synagogue. He's teaching in the public square. He's teaching in the city. He's teaching wherever he is at. And so in Matthew 4, 23, it says, He, referring to Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among them. So one of the things we see quickly in Jesus' ministry is a teaching component that's biblical. But once Jesus had finished teaching, the result was praise. The result was glory. The result was honor to Jesus. The audience understood that when Jesus spoke, Jesus is not speaking like a normal, everyday, average teacher. For people to think that Jesus is merely a man, which he is fully man, and for people to think that Jesus is just a simple teacher, and that's all, they have a low view of Christ. Mark 1.22 says this, And they, talking about the crowd, were astonished, at his teaching, Jesus' teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. When Jesus taught, people listened. When Jesus, when Jesus was present, people looked. People paid attention. So Jesus is not simply a mere man. He is fully man. And he's not just a mere teacher. He's the God-man who came to save his people. He is the Savior. And the main point of today's text, we see this in two areas. Two important areas. Jesus fully accepted, question mark. I intentionally put the question mark. That's verses 14 to 22. And the second point is Jesus fully rejected in verses 23 to 30. So Jesus fully accepted, read with me in verse 16. And he, referring to Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And this is where Pastor Vladimir was reading. And the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. 
And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? So we're going from Galilee, a synagogue in Galilee, now to a synagogue in Nazareth. If you remember in the Gospels that this is Jesus' hometown. That's why they name him affectionately in the Bible, Jesus of Nazareth. Not Jesus of Jerusalem, but Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth is about 20 miles southwest of Capernaum. He is now in a hometown church, if I can say it that way. And again, as his custom, he goes in there on the Sabbath day to teach. And somebody either gave him the Isaiah scroll or he asked for the Isaiah scroll. The text doesn't say exactly. And he unrolls this text and he reads it for the entire synagogue. And if you notice, the people at that time, out of respect for the word of God, what they would do is as someone would read the Holy Scriptures in front of a public setting, the people out of reverence for the word of God would stand up. Does that sound familiar? Does that look familiar? And then once the word of God is read, they would scroll it back up, give it back to the attendant, and then the person would sit down. Because why? There's now a time for a homily. We don't use the word homily in Baptist circles. We use the word sermons. So they would be ready for a sermon or waiting for a sermon by any qualified male who was present to teach at that time. But when we look at verses 18 and 19, once he opens up the scriptures and reads, he is reading from two very specific texts. And I hope you write this down. He's he's reading from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2. And Isaiah 58, verse 6. Isaiah 58, verse 6. Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. And it's very interesting what he is quoting. Because in the Isaiah context, if you understand Isaiah, in the 8th century, God calls a prophet, an aristocrat, an educated man, a man of well-learning by the name of Isaiah. He served in ministry for over 40 years. And Isaiah, Isaiah preaches against the leaders of Israel. Why? Because they're hypocrites. Why? Because they're greedy. Why? Because they promote self-indulgence. Why? Because they promote cynicism instead of just reading the Word of God and trusting it. And so the nation was being morally ruined. And so God calls Isaiah in the 7th century to rise up and preach against God's people, especially the leaders of God's people. And because of their sins, because they did not repent, God judged them. And how did God judge them? Well, God sent Babylon to defeat his own people. They were exiled in 722 B.C. That was their punishment for not repenting and turning away from their sins. God punished his own people. And yet God promised to save his people, the remnant, from exile and captivity in the future. Historically speaking, God used a man by the name of Cyrus, a Persian, to redeem the remnant, those who would survive the captivity. And we see that in Isaiah 44. So that's, that's the, 
general context of Isaiah. And the reason I wanted to explain that is what we're about to get, to, get into in Luke chapter 4, you're not going to understand the gravitas and the weight of Luke chapter 4 unless you understand what Isaiah is actually doing in his time. And so what we end up with when we read Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 58, and we put those two together from a Jewish standpoint, what we get is this. That a mere man, a mere prophet, cannot accomplish and satisfy Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 58. No mere man can do it. Why? Because the task is so enormous, is so grandiose, is so epic and enormous that a mere man can't do that. It would have to be a man that comes from heaven. And that man that comes from heaven is the man who humbled himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Because this redemption is so vast that God would accomplish this through his own servant. That's why Isaiah lists in Isaiah 52, 53, a very special servant, the suffering servant, which points to Jesus Christ. So now let's go back to Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The word spirit is capital S, is it not? It's not lowercase. We're talking about the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit of the Lord is upon me. That me, Jesus is applying it to himself, applies, applying the Spirit to himself. He's saying that the third person of the Holy Spirit or the Holy Trinity is upon him. Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's led by the Spirit. And in this context, he comes in the power of the Spirit. He goes on to say in that text, because he, referring to God, has anointed me. This is language of an illusion that points back to Jesus when he was baptized in Luke chapter 3. Jesus was baptized. Jesus was commissioned for a very special task. It's not a random task. It's a very specific task. And he addresses his task by addressing four types of people. We see here to proclaim good news to the poor. To proclaim good news to the poor. To evangelize and to preach to those who are mistreated by the public and by the world. Those who are considered subhuman. People who are not cared for. And so Jesus says to proclaim good news to the poor. The beautiful thing about this is that Jesus has a real, genuine desire to reach out to those who are destitute and poor. The world forgets about these people, but Jesus does not. He goes on to say, He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. You see that? That Jesus is addressing the poor. Jesus is addressing the captive. Jesus is addressing the blind. Jesus is addressing the oppressed. 
Jesus was formally and officially tasked and commissioned and sent to announce and to herald that I am the one that the Old Testament scriptures talk about to redeem you and to set you free. He is going to liberate and he has liberated those people. So when we think about that current context, this is really much more than about some sort of physical benefit. It's more than economic liberty or financial freedom. It's much more than political oppression or whatever party you want to hold on to. But there are two levels of being liberated. Yes, there's a physical component, but there's a spiritual component as well. In Isaiah's day, in Isaiah's day, remember, God has called Isaiah to preach against the leaders of Israel. Why? Because they're hypocrites. They're taking advantage of the poor. That's in Isaiah's day. Now Jesus, 800 years later, is saying there's a greater problem. It's not simply physical. It's spiritual. There's a spiritual problem. And so the emphasis is that I am here to liberate and free those who are under spiritual oppression. That's the greatest problem, is sin. The greatest problem is sin. You know, it's amazing when we listen to news and watch news or social media, and if there's a problem in the nation, the, the way that people want to fix the problem in the nation is more money, more entitlement, more rights, more privileges, more laws, more education, more taxes, more military, more health care. None of those institutions ever address sin. The problem is sin. The problem has always, be, has always been and always will be sin. And Jesus has come to fix that problem. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, you are under a curse and I'm here to reverse the curse. I am here to reverse the curse. So when we think of terms of politics and economics and race and ethnicity and gender, you are not thinking biblically. Let me say that again. When you think in worldly terms, you are not thinking biblically. Ouch, Pastor Rolo. Because once you say Jesus is Lord, Jesus owns everything in you. He bought you with a price. He owns you. You no longer live for yourself. And so what we do as good American Christians, we come to church on Sunday, we hear a good word, and we say amen, and then we walk out the doors, and we separate our Christian life from our physical life. And in the Bible, those two come together and are never separated. So that affects how you think, that affects how you talk, that affects how you live, and that affects how you are parents, and in spouses and marriage. That affects everything that you do. I hear you saying amen, but as soon as you walk out this door, you're going to go back to your old ways. In Luke chapter 1, we see Zechariah's prophecy about Jesus. Not about John the Baptist, which is Zechariah's son, but about Jesus, the Savior. 
Luke 1, verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zechariah prophesied that the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus, he's not here to give you financial freedom, and he's not here to give you political freedom. He's here to forgive you of your sins through his own blood. There's forgiveness. The problem is sin. And when you start thinking biblically, you look at the world as cursed. You look at the world as sinful and evil. And the only solution is not the world's ways, but God's way in Christ. There's always hope in the gospel. Our hope is Christ. So Jesus is not saying, or Jesus is saying, don't put your hope in anything or anyone else outside of me. Put your hope in him. Put your hope in him. None of those institutions address sin. You know, when I share the gospel with people, people, if you've shared the gospel, will give you a million different answers on why they think they're going to get to heaven. And one question that you need to counter with is this question. Is how do you deal with your sins when you deal with a holy God? How do you deal with your personal sins with a holy God? Because that question drives to the point that you need a Savior. You need a Savior. And so when we think about what Christ has done for us, Weren't we the ones who were spiritually poor? Weren't we the ones who were spiritually dead? Weren't we the ones who were spiritually oppressed? Yes, we were, if we were to be honest with ourselves. And yet, in God's mercy, He gave us the Son from on high. The Son came came to visit us in the person of Jesus Christ. Mercy, if I can say it this way, was incarnated. And we have Jesus, the one who left the glories of heaven, the one who lived the life you should have lived, who died the horrible breath, death that you should have received. And yet he took it upon himself, the most perfect person in the entire universe with no sin at all, motivated by love and the glory of God the Father, and he lived and died for you. If that's not humbling, I don't know what is. He is the one why we're forgiven. God God in his kindness has directed our feet to the Prince of Peace. And we praise God for that. If you look at verse 19 in Luke chapter 4, he ends his quotation with this. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. If you understand that language, you need to go back to Leviticus 25 because Leviticus 25 talks about the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee happens once every 50 years. And what happens in in the interim time is this, that if you are a slave 
then you're a slave for a variety of reasons. Either you're born into slavery, so it's not like American slavery at all, but you're born into slavery, or your parents sold themselves into slavery, and that therefore you automatically became part of that family. Or you had a financial problem. You couldn't pay off your debts. You couldn't pay off your bills. In America, you declare bankruptcy. Well, in biblical times, you had to sell yourself as a slave. Well, what happened at that point is at the 50th year, the slave becomes free. So everybody who had a slave, and it's the year of Jubilee, you have to let them go. They are free men and women. Oh, by the way, if they owed you money, you canceled all their debts, by the way. So if they owed you 100,000 U.S. dollars or a million U.S. dollars, it doesn't matter. You cancel the entire financial debt. They're no longer slaves. They are completely free. And so that's what Jesus is talking about. We're talking about total forgiveness by the God who could only do that. Total, complete forgiveness by God. And so this is the language that Jesus is using. So Jesus is saying, God is ready to forgive you completely. That's what he's saying. But it's going to be through the blood of his son. This is not some random, nebulous, general forgiveness. I love you, you, for, you love me, we're a happy family. No, this is not Barney salvation. This is true Honest to God, complete, total salvation in Christ through his blood. And so in verse 20, we see that Jesus, he's quoting Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 58. And once he does that, he rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, and he sits down. And all the people just stare at him like, what's next? Because in Jewish synagogue worship services the person reads he stands up and reads the people stand up during the reading once the reading is done the people sit down next is exposition teaching and he sits down and the people are shocked are you going to explain this jesus of nazareth of course thank you for the invitation we see in verse 21, Jesus says this. This is how he explains it. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus says, what was done in the 8th century, 800 years ago approximately, has now been fulfilled in your hearing, in your presence. What Isaiah talked about, I am he, and I am here. That's what Jesus is saying. And so the content of Isaiah's message is satisfied in the person and work of Jesus Christ, ultimately. You know, in scholarly circles, and seminary circles, they like to use $1,000 words, right? You've got to pay $1,000 in tuition to learn a fancy word, right? And so the word is hermeneutics, and hermeneutics is the discipline of interpreting the Bible, specifically when it comes to the original author to the original audience. See, when we read the Bible, the worst thing we could ever do is read the Bible, blah, 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 and say, the very first question, and say, hmm, I wonder what that means to me. What you've just done, whether you realize it or not, is you over-contextualize the text. 
Because you've taken something that was written 800 years ago in this context. I'm using this for example. 800 years ago by an original author, Isaiah, to original people, the people of Israel, who were in deep grave sin in the 7th or 8th century. And so what we have to ask ourselves as Bible students or Bible believers is, we read the Bible and we say, okay, what, does, what was the intent of the author? What was his goal and purpose in writing this? And what was the message? And who was the original audience? Original author, original text, original audience. That's basic hermeneutics 101. And then once you figure out what it meant to them, then you can say, how can I apply that to me? But to start off and say, what does this mean to me? I mean, that, that makes every Bible-believing Christian nauseated. Like, we're not interested in what you think. We're not interested in how you feel. We're interested in what God has said. What does God want? What does God require? What is God's purpose? Not what you feel. Not what I feel. And so that's the way we need to look at the Bible. What was the author's original intent? And so when we look at Luke's goal here, right? turn with me to Luke chapter 1. A couple pages here left. Luke chapter 1, verse 3. Luke writes, And it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So Luke is writing to help a person understand things biblically, and his name is Theophilus. Read verse 4. That you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Luke does not want Theophilus to live his Christian life with no assurance. Confusion, chaos, discouragement. He says, Theophilus, I'm writing to you. I've been observing. By the way, I'm a physician. I'm trained to write things and document things really, really well. And I'm writing these things so that you may know and know for sure that the things that you have seen, the things that you've learned from us are true. They're facts. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Savior. You know, the Christian faith is factual. It's rooted in the truth of God's word. It's rooted in history. It's rooted in Jesus Christ. What else do you need? But look at this in verse 21 of Luke chapter 4. Jesus says something very interesting when he responds and exposits or explains this Isaiah 61, Isaiah 58 text. He's saying that it's fulfilled, those texts in the Old Testament is fulfilled in who? In him. Jesus is saying, it's fulfilled in me. You've been waiting 800 years. It's here. So Jesus has a hermeneutic. That's my point. Jesus has a way of interpreting the Bible. Jesus uses the Bible to explain the Bible. Jesus does not use human tradition and, and personal whims to explain the Bible. He doesn't use emotion to explain the Bible. Jesus has a hermeneutic. He's saying the Old Testament points to me. 
The Bible points to me, Jesus. Jesus has a way of understanding the Bible. Pay attention to what Jesus does not say. Jesus does not say the Old Testament scriptures are fulfilled in my Americanism. The Old Testament scriptures are fulfilled in my American politics. The Old Testament scriptures are fulfilled in my American education or career or American retirement. Jesus doesn't say any of that. Jesus says, it's me. All of the scriptures point to me. Also, Jesus does not say the Old Testament scriptures are fulfilled in Israel. The people group. The ethnic Jews. If you've read the Old Testament, you would know that Israel, the people of God, were unfaithful to God many, many, many times. That's why God sent prophets. That's why ultimately God sends the Savior. So the Old Testament scriptures are not fulfilled in ethnic national Israel. It's in the true Israel, Jesus Christ, the true Son of God, the one who's obedient to God all the time. They're fulfilled in him. So Jesus, I'm belaboring the point, has a Christ-centered hermeneutic. So how do you read the Bible? That's a legitimate question. How do you read the Bible? When you read the Bible, do you say to yourself, how is this fulfilled in the people of the Old Testament? Or the people now? Or do you say, how is this fulfilled in Christ? In Jesus, the Christ. One scholar says it like this, as a whole, when we read the Bible, we need to look for the fulfillment of God's Old Testament promises in Jesus Christ and in his kingdom. So that's, is Jesus fully accepted? The answer is no, which leads to point number two, Jesus fully rejected. That's an emphatic statement. Verse 23, read with me. And he said to them, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So did you notice their reaction went from praise and glory and honor completely to the other side of the spectrum? 
They were amazed at his message. They were amazed at his kind words, his gracious words. They approved of his message. But then they ask a rhetorical question. I think it's really an objection. They state, isn't this Joseph's son? Okay, keep this in mind. Nazareth is Jesus' hometown. He's lived there for a good number of years. People know Joseph and Mary at least for some time. They know that Joseph is a carpenter, like father, like son. If he's a carpenter, the son is what? A carpenter. And so what are the people saying with this objection? They're saying, can a carpenter son, who is a carpenter, actually fulfill Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 58? That's what they're saying. Can this be possible? And in verse 23, Jesus responds to their objection. He says this, No doubt you will quote to me the proverb, Physician, heal yourself. This specific proverb, by the way, is not in the Old Testament book of the Proverbs. It was just a proverb of that current day and time. And so when somebody would say, Physician, heal yourself, what they're saying in reality is, Prove it. You're a carpenter's son. Now prove it. That's what they mean by physician, heal yourself. They're challenging Jesus' power and authority. Are you really that person, Jesus? Then prove it. So Jesus anticipates another objection from the crowd, and he says, What we have heard that you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown too. This is what they're saying. We heard the stories of what you did in another area, the miracles, that you healed the sick, that you healed all kinds of diseases, you healed the lepers, you healed the blind. You've done all these mighty miracles. If you truly are the person to fulfill Isaiah 61 and 58, then do a miracle, hometown boy. You're a hometown hero if you can do this. And does, does Jesus even spend the time to answer that foolishness? The answer is no. It's true that Jesus did mighty miracles, but they did not want to take Jesus at his word. They wanted something extraordinary instead of trusting Jesus at his word. I wonder if that's us many times, right? That this, we claim on Sunday mornings as the very, literal word of God. And we, we're happy to affirm that, and we're happy to say that. But does your lifestyle actually affirm that throughout the week? Are you looking for something extraordinary instead of what God has given you? Do you need something more than the Bible? That's what these people want. They want something more than the word. Jesus' word wasn't enough, and Jesus doesn't cater to their personal whims. And so Jesus, in verse 24, states the obvious. Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his own town, his hometown. What Jesus is saying, I am not going to receive the honor and respect that's due my name. No prophet is going to receive that in their hometown. But what's interesting is this, that Jesus says in verse 19, it's the favorable year of the Lord. It's the year of Jubilee, so to speak. Remember, Jesus is saying, God completely forgives. Completely forgives. 
God is ready to forgive you of all your spiritual debts, all of your sins. He's ready to accept you based on the blood of another, the Lord Jesus Christ. But what's interesting is you're not ready to accept him, the one that God has sent. That should tell us real quickly that people love the blessing, the idea of heaven. They love the idea of the love of God. They love the forgiveness of God position. But they want salvation on their own terms. Wicked men and women are very good at creating their own terms in order to receive the gift that comes from God. And God will not bow down to that. When God says jump, we say how high. When God plays his music, we sing and dance. It's not the other way around. God is not our cosmic butler. He doesn't do what we want. He may provide the things that you need, but don't mistake him as your cosmic butler. So people want salvation on their own terms. Jesus is saying this is the year of the Jubilee. You can be forgiven right now. You don't got to wait another 49 years. You can be forgiven of everything right now through the true prophet, the true redeemer, Jesus. And we read this in verse 25. To back up Jesus' point, Jesus says this in verse 25. He gives two examples to prove his case. He uses two prophets in the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha. Elijah and Elisha are counterparts. But in the case of Elijah, it's Elijah and the widow. That's example number one. Example number two, Elisha and Naaman. We see Elijah and the widow in 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter 17, Elijah and the widow. So if you remember this text, Ahab is the king of Israel. And the Bible is very clear that Ahab is a very sinful, evil person. The Bible actually records Ahab as the one who did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. There was a lot of evil people before King Ahab. But the Bible documents King Ahab as more evil than all those evil kings put together. And he is the one who is responsible for instituting Baal worship. Baal worship comes from the Canaanite religion. In the Canaanite religion, Baal or Baal is the one who's responsible as the storm god. Remember, this is an agricultural society. The people, in order for them to get food, they need rain. Then their crops would grow. Then they would harvest the crops and the people would eat. And so the Baal religion would say, give glory and honor to Baal. Pray to Baal. Worship Baal. Honor Baal, the storm god of the Canaanite religion. That's, what, that's the context. He's the one who's responsible for giving life, giving rains, and fertility to the land. And Elijah, sent by God, challenges that whole paradigm, that sinful, wicked paradigm. And Elijah says to King Ahab, there's no more rain coming, King Ahab, until I say so. Not that he's in command. Elijah's representing God. And so why does Elijah do that? Elijah is proving to King Ahab that you don't control anything. God controls the rain. And God will give the rain as he pleases. It's not you, and it's definitely not Baal. 
Yahweh is the true God. And so Jesus says, out of all the widows that were in Israel, did you pay attention to that? Out of all the widows that are in Israel, not in the outskirts of the nation, all the widows that are within Israel during Elijah's time, and there were many, the Lord sends Elijah not to Israel, but to where? To Zarephath, to the land of Sidon. If you know the Mediterranean Sea, it's on the eastern or western coast, I should say, western coast of that land. And so Elijah is leaving the religion of the Jews to go into a land that is primarily Canaanite, Baal worship. And he's going there to bring salvation. And once Elijah arrives to this area, he sees this widow picking up little sticks. Why? Because she's about to make a little fire, cook her last meal for her and her son, and then they will die of starvation. This is the last flour. This is the last olive oil. This is the last meal. And so this is the meal before they die. And so Elijah says to the widow, hey, give me water and give me bread. And then the widow says to Elijah, you don't understand. This is going to be our last meal. And Elijah says to the widow, go ahead and do what you want to do. Oh, by the way, make a small cake for me. Isn't that a weird statement? You're telling a widow who's about to die, last ounce of flour, last ounce of olive oil, to make me a cake or make Elijah a cake. That's just a weird statement. But we get the answer. Why? Because the Lord God of Israel is in control. He's sovereign. And he will not allow you to go hungry and die. And what does God do? In a very real but supernatural way, provides flour and more flour and more olive oil for her and her son to eat. And they don't run out of any of that until the day of the Lord when the rains come back. Because when the rains come, that comes from the Lord, not from Baal. And they will be able to sustain themselves. And so what's the result? The result is this, is that God provides what's needed. God provides the provisions for this widow and her son who are destitute. If you understand this context, to be a female is to be vulnerable in Old Testament times. And to be a female who's a widow is more vulnerability and more exposure and more risk. And so we have both in this situation. There's no man, there's no one to help provide and protect. And you have a woman who's a widow who lost her dear husband and a little child. And this is literally their last meal. And God in his kindness provides Elijah to deliver this good news. And salvation has come. And the widow and the son eat and eat and eat. And they live and do not die. Praise God. Praise God for that. So this account is not about food, but it's more than that. It's about spiritual food. Jesus is saying salvation has come to the Gentiles. The second example, I'll make this quick. Elisha and Naaman. We see that in 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. Elisha, again, is the prophet who replaced Elijah. But Naaman is a mighty warrior. He's the commander of the Syrian army. He's a man that commands and demands respect and honor and privilege. He's esteemed by the king of Syria. And Naaman was given many military victories, not because he was the greatest, that's partially true, but ultimately it's because God gave him those victories. 
in those military conquests. But Naaman had a very serious problem. He had a skin problem. He had a skin disease. He was a leper. To be a leper is one of the worst things you could ever have as a person during that time. It's like your skin is dying on your alive body, and you see it. You see the pus just come out. It's painful. And so Naaman was instructed by a servant girl, if you remember the story in 2 Kings chapter 5. In one of his conquests, they conquer and bring in an Israelite girl as a slave into his household. And the wife of Naaman says, hey, our servant girl, this Israelite girl says, there's a prophet in Samaria that if you go, you can be healed of this wicked skin disease. And so Naaman, the long story short, ends up at the doorway of Elisha's home. And Elisha doesn't even personally greet him. Elisha sends a servant to tell Naaman, this great commander, to go into the Jordan River and wash seven times. Seven is the number of perfection. And so Naaman, being a prideful military man, becomes angry. And he says, isn't the waters of Damascus better? Aren't the waters of Abana and Farpur much better than the waters of Israel? This Jordan River means nothing to me. That's what Naaman is saying. And so his servants convince him to go wash, and he eventually humbles himself. He goes into the Jordan River, dips one time, not clean, dips three times, not clean, dips five times, not clean. It was on the seventh time, as exactly instructed, that he was healed of his painful skin disease, leprosy. And the Bible says when he did that, he trusted the word of God, that his skin came out smooth as a young child. Like he was born with brand new baby skin. If those of you who have children, especially babies, you look at their skin, you're like, oh, so sweet and so smooth, right? All of us want that type of skin, right? We all want to go back. But what is Jesus actually saying in Luke chapter 4? It's the same idea with Elijah and the widow. That salvation has come. Not simply in physical form, but the bigger problem is sin. And so salvation is here. There's a spiritual problem, and Jesus is the answer. That's the point. He said there was many people in, in that time frame that were lepers, but there was only one person that was healed. There was many widows in Israel, but there was only one widow that was provided for. What is Jesus saying? Those are fighting words if you understand what he's saying from a Jewish context. He's saying, yes, you're the chosen people of God. Yes, you receive the Decalogue, the Ten Laws, or the Ten Commandments. You are the recognized people of God. But you know what? Because of Elijah and the widow and Elisha and Naaman, salvation is now going beyond you. It's going beyond the borders of this land. Gentiles are hearing the gospel and being saved. That's the point of this, that salvation has come to those who are not Jewish. And we must understand this from the position that the true prophet is here. The true redeemer is here, Jesus Christ. That's why they got angry. Because what Jesus is saying, those are fighting words. Jews don't like to hear that. They want to be told, you're chosen. You're privileged. You're the ones who received the law. You are God's people. 
And Jesus is saying, the gospel is going beyond you now because you don't recognize that the real prophet of Isaiah 61 and 58 is now standing in your midst. That's what Jesus is saying. And so the crowd is angry. They're furious. They're filled with rage. And they force Jesus out of the synagogue. They force him out to the outskirts of the city. They force him up to this high hill. Why? Because they want to push him over the cliff to kill him. And yet, we know that it's not Jesus' hour. It's not his time to die. And so he was able, by divine direction, to move and escape that. As one scholar says, Jesus was not going to die in Nazareth. He was going to die in Jerusalem. That's his appointed place and in, at an appointed, appointed time. So what do we get from today's text? There's three practical applications. Number one, we need to teach others the gospel. Teach others the gospel. Jesus taught in the synagogue. I'm not asking you to go into the next local nearest Jewish synagogue and start open-air preaching. I'm not saying that. But you are called to teach the gospel. And I understand there's a big difference, a major difference between teaching the gospel to unsaved non-Christian people versus discipling Christian people. Both need the gospel. But those who are non-Christians, they're not born again. They're dead in sin. They don't have a heart that loves Christ. So to hold them accountable to obey the word of God is foolishness. You can't disciple goats. You can only disciple sheep those who are born again. But those who are not Christians, we still have an obligation. Teach them the gospel. Teach them the gospel. Isaiah 61, 2. Please turn there real quick as I close because there's something very important here in Isaiah 61, verse 2. Jesus quotes Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 58 properly, accurately, but there's one part that he left out. And it's this, Isaiah 61, verse 2. And it says this, To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And here it is, And the day of vengeance of our God. That's why we need to teach the gospel now, because when Jesus comes again, there's no more teaching the gospel. He came to save his people on the first visit. On the second visit, Jesus will judge. It's the day of vengeance. There's no more time to share the gospel. There's no more hope at that time. Those who repent and trust in Jesus are secure in Christ. But those who do not repent and do not trust in Jesus, they're condemned. And so we need to understand that there is not a whole lot of time. We live like, there's, we live like we're going to live forever. You're going to live forever. The question is, is, is it in that body or in a glorified body? That's the real question. But we need to point others to Christ. We need to point others that Jesus is the anointed one and he's the rejected one. Jesus is the one who, who is here to reverse the curse. Number two, when we share the gospel, we need to use gracious words. I've heard open-air preachers, I hear a lot of evangelists, they love to shove the gospel down people's throats. I get it. Part of it is because they love people, but part of it is they love themselves. They love to hear themselves talk. They're like, take this and enjoy it. I've heard an, I've heard an open-air preacher say, Pastor Rolla, I told them about hell, 
the reality of hell, that they're going to hell, and they rejected the gospel, and I just laughed in their face. Like, I don't know how you can laugh in people's faces like that. If you believe that the Bible's the word of God and hell is real, and they're going to be cast into hell for all of eternity, how do you laugh? Be gracious. Be faithful to the word of God and be gracious in what you say. I'm not saying violate your biblical conscience, but you can be gracious and send a biblical message. Number three, expect anger and persecution from those who are not Christians, who, those who are not born again. Expect it. Those who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. That's a promise from the Bible. And you may say, I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid. Join the club. But what we're called not to do is to stick our tail between our legs and walk away from Jesus. Stand up for Christ. Be winsome. Be holy. Be gracious. Be loving. Be kind. Be merciful. Be faithful to the word of God. You are mailmen and mailwomen. You don't write the mail. You just deliver the mail. Deliver the mail. Step out in faith. Trust the Lord. He will answer. He will answer. He will use you. And it's all for his glory. Sermon in a sentence, and I close with this. God completely forgives all who are spiritually poor. Praise God. That's you. That was me. God forgives all who are spiritually captive, blind, and oppressed through faith alone and Christ alone. Do you believe that? That's what the Word of God says. I pray that you would believe that, hold that, embrace that, and never let that go. You were the ones who were spiritually oppressed, including me, and God had mercy upon us. And he saved us through the blood of his son. And we praise God. And all of God's people said, amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us. We heard a hard word, but it's a word that comes from you. And we pray, oh God, that you would help us to hate our sin and to love what you love, to love your word, to love the gospel, to love the glory of your great name. Forgive us, Lord, where we have failed you and sinned against you. We thank you, O God, for the salvation that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we were spiritually blind and oppressed, and yet you came and gave us eyes to behold the beauty and the majesty and the worth of Christ. You gave us a heart that loved you for the very first time. We pray, O oh God, that you would stoke that fire in our hearts by your spirit and by your word, and that we would all glorify your name, for you are worthy in Christ, we pray. Amen.